Well, it's August again, which can only mean three things. Uh, first, my cubbies are in first place for now, uh, but we've got, uh, yeah, we've got two months to throw it away like we generally do. So um, the second thing is uh, Randy is on a study break as he takes every summer, so you've got a couple weeks that you're going to have to put up with me, and I apologize for that. But, but the third thing follows that very closely, which is... It's time for some demotivators again, okay? And uh, I don't know how many of you are like me, and, and uh, sometimes you see maybe in some of your offices or things like that, you have those motivational, you know, posters up on the wall, right, where it's like a picture of a sunrise or something, you know, and, and it's like dedication, and then this, the saying underneath will be like, the early bird gets the worm, or, you know, something like that. Well, I have come to, in the last several years, really enjoy the demotivational calendar, which kind of takes a sarcastic spin on those things. They're available at despair.com. You can build your own. It's, it's kind of like there's, there's not a real exciting, you know, I don't have a real exciting life. So every December, it's like, oh, goody, I get to build my calendar again for the next year. And so, so I want to share with you, uh, for those of you who were with us last August, you'll remember I shared a few of my favorites for the year, and I'll share a few more with you today, okay? So here's a couple. Uh, teamwork. A few harmless flakes working together can unleash an avalanche of destruction. And this was one of my favorites, a leaning tower pizza. Mediocrity. It takes a lot less time and most people won't notice the difference until it's too late. <laughs> Consistency. It's only a virtue if you're not a screw-up. I think those are words to live by. Dysfunction. The only consistent feature of all your dissatisfying relationships is you. <laughs> I love this one. Retirement. Because you've given so much of yourself to the company that you don't have anything left we can use. And then this one kind of, the last one ties into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, sacrifice. You can see the picture of the temple up there. Sacrifice. All we ask here is that you give us your heart. <laughs> well, the next two weeks, today we're specifically, if you're going to turn there, we're in Matthew 19 today. That's where we're going to be at. Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew's the first book in your New Testament. And then over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about intersections in our life. We're going to talk about today kind of the intersection of, of faith and stuff. And next week we're going to talk about the intersection of, of faith and our everyday lives. So today we're going to look at a story, Matthew 19, uh, a man who comes up to Jesus and, and kind of an intersection that happens in Jesus' life. So here's what we read. Matthew 19, verse 16, it says this. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, there are a couple of things that we learn about this man. Throughout the rest of the story, we'll learn these things. We learn uh, this story is in three of the gospel accounts, and we learn it in there, too. That uh, first, he's described as a young man, which probably means he's somewhere around 20 to 40 years old. He's also described as rich, which means, uh, think about this, riches oftentimes in the first century world came at the expense of other people. You know, tax collectors were rich because they took more than they needed to take. Sometimes landlords or landowners or people like that took more money than they ought to take, okay? So he is rich, he is young, and, and very, very devout. We learn that later on in the story. Uh, possibly someone suggested maybe he's a Pharisee, maybe some other kind of, uh, of influential person in the community, some type of ruler or whatever. Yet he comes to Jesus with a certain humility. Mark's gospel tells us that he falls on his knees before Jesus. And even in this account of it, we, we hear him come up and say, teacher. He gives Jesus a term of respect. And he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now I gotta tell you, this is my kind of guy, okay? A schemer. This guy comes up to Jesus and basically is saying, what is my golden ticket? You know, like, what is the thing that, I, what do I, what do I gotta do? 
What is it that has to happen in my life for me to get eternal life? What's it going to take, Jesus? And, uh, you know, he's asking, is it going to be some kind of charitable donation? Am I going to have to to give an endowment? You know, do I need to give to the iFund and so I can get A tickets? And what's it going to take for me? Something has clearly happened in this man's life, and he's looking for some assurance about what's going to happen when he dies. Okay, so Jesus responds to him. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. You know, just a real simple answer. Jesus knows that he's asking about deeds. The man is asking, what do I have to do? How can I be perfect? What is it going to take for me to be good enough to earn my salvation? And Jesus says, okay, you want to be good enough? Well, you know how there are like 613 commandments in the Old Testament? Why don't you just follow all of those? And if you do that perfectly, you'll be fine. No big deal, right? No problem at all. And uh, we continue on. The man replies back to Jesus. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now I can really identify with the guy at this point. Because Jesus has just answered his question. He says, what good thing do I have to do? And Jesus says, well, just be perfect. You know, keep everything in the Old Testament and you'll be fine. And the guy says, well, no, okay, specifically, which of those commandments would you like for me to obey? And so Jesus lists off six of the Ten Commandments. He lists Commandments 5 through 10. And notice, the first four commandments tend to focus on our relationship with God. But the, but the last six commandments are very horizontal in nature. It deals with our relationships with other, pe- other people, which gives us kind of a foreshadowing of what the guy, uh, what, where the conversation is going to go. Well, this is the guy's response. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? You know, and I used to look at this verse and think, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, you know, wouldn't you all answer Jesus that way too? If Jesus said, we just need to be perfect, you just need to do, obey all the commandments, and I'm sure all of us in this room would say, well, sure, I've I've been doing all of that, you know, I've been living a totally perfect life, so what else is it that I still lack? And we, uh, last August, if you were here, I I talked about that we were knee-deep in potty training at that point with our then two-and-a-half-year-old. And here I stand before you in August later telling you we're getting close to finishing up to potty training our three-and-a-half-year-old. And, And, uh, you know, it used to be, uh, well, at at this point, you know, to be totally honest with you, I'm just going to be happy if the child is potty trained before college. Like, that's my prayer is please don't go to college and have to figure out the potty training thing there. But... But it used to be that we would give her candy each time she went to the bathroom. You know, like any good parent, when you're trying to get a child to do something, you just dangle the carrot in front of them and, you know, okay, come on, keep going, keep trying this. Well, she kind of got that down, and so we started trying to dangle the carrot just a little bit further out. Okay, now you have to go all day and not have an accident, and then we'll give you candy. You know, because it's a great idea as a parent to wait until the end of the day and sugar the child up before we send her to bed, you know. But, uh, but here we are with, with our daughter, and, and the question is always the same. The child will go to the bathroom, and then she asks the very same question, can I get candy now? And we're always saying to her, no, you have to wait all day. You have to be able to keep your pants dry all day. And she's going, but I did it. But I am keeping my pants dry. You know, and then you find yourself as an adult holding up the underpants saying, no, you did it. <laughs> These are not dry. And I feel like when I read this story, that's what Jesus should be saying to this guy. No, you haven't. Would you like me to list for you some examples of how you haven't been living it out? But understand something. This this young man who comes up to Jesus is not speaking to Jesus out of arrogance. 
He's speaking in truth. Because as a devout young Jewish man, he would have been doing the best he could not only to obey the Old Testament commands, but then the Pharisees had set another group of rules on top of that to make sure if you broke one of their rules, you still weren't breaking what was in, what, what, what was in God's rules. So here's this man doing everything he possibly can not to break any of those rules. And when he does, he probably goes and makes restitution to a person he's hurt. He goes and he makes a sacrifice. He does whatever it takes to make it right. In fact, Paul in Philippians 3, when, when he's listing uh, sort of his credentials as a Pharisee, he says, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. He's basically saying, listen, according to the law, I had been doing everything that was asked of me. But this man comes to Jesus and he says, I have done all the right things, but it feels like something's still missing. What is it that's missing in my life? Um, And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and uh, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, you can kind of imagine, you know, this, this man is probably somebody who is well-known in the community. I mean, people probably knew who he was if he was wealthy and influential. And so people see him come up to Jesus. And what, are you t- what do we tend to think of? If it were us right now, we'd be thinking, man, what a great convert to make, right? You know, this guy's got a lot of money and power and influence. If Jesus could get him to be one of his disciples, this would be a great opportunity for Jesus to really leverage some resources and have a great follower of his. And you can just sort of imagine the crowd gets silent when Jesus says, if you want to enter heaven, if you want to have eternal life, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It's like the man came to Jesus and said, could you give me a drink? And Jesus opened up a fire hydrant and said, sure, put your mouth here. You know, try. It's no big deal. We were at uh, CIY uh, a couple weeks ago with our high school students, and, uh, and each morning at CIY, we were, our small groups would meet in a certain area. It was a great area. We had air conditioning and everything, and, uh, and at night, we were supposed to meet in that same area kind of to debrief the day. Well, we would go in in the morning, and our area would be open, and everything would be fine. Then we would go in at night, and unfortunately, there was some kind of wired, not, not crossed right or whatever with the, the facility staff because we weren't able to get into the place that we needed to go. So, you know, we're trying other things like, like walking in and then them kicking us out. And sometimes we would like sneak our way in and then get kicked out later and all that stuff. And you could see, you know, this was kind of becoming a frustration. Some of our coaches, my wife included, was saying, hey... Why don't, why don't you just back off? Like, why don't we just go find another place to meet? Do we really have to do this every night where you go in and we get kicked out of the space? And I'm going, yeah, we do. I'm a man, you know? This is about man pride now, right? I will keep doing the stupid thing over and over again until I either die or get my way, right? This is a man pride issue. And for this guy, it would have been the same thing. Because here he is, his money, his, his success, his power, his security in life, everything was wrapped up into who he was. And Jesus says, this is how you are a somebody. What Jesus is asking is for him to become a nobody. And understand, he would have, been, he would have already been giving to the poor. Giving of alms was one of the pillars of piety in first century Judaism. So this man certainly would have been giving to the poor. But here's the deal. That kind of giving the poor is done out of the abundance. Jesus is asking for a real sacrifice. Makes you think, doesn't it? What would Jesus say to us? 
If we had a conversation with Jesus and we said, what one thing do I still lack? What is it that I'm missing? What do you think Jesus would say to your family? Maybe for some of us, he would address the issue that we can continue making a car payment on a gas-guzzling SUV, but we always say that our tithe is tough to come by. Maybe for some of us who say, I can't support a compassion kid, but we have an iPod full of 5,000 songs, Jesus might have an issue with that. Or maybe for some who say, I'm sorry, I just can't send my kid to camp or CIY, but when it comes down to essential stuff like volleyball camp, we always find a way. But maybe it's not even about money. I mean, that was this man's issue, but maybe for some of us, money isn't the real issue in our lives. Maybe for some, Jesus might say, okay, I want you to take an entire year off of video games. Or how about this? What if Jesus said, I want you to take an entire year off of Facebook? Now, I know some of you in the room, that that would be a major sacrifice for you. If Jesus said, I want you to take a year off of those things that keep pulling your attention away. We were uh, in college and my roommate and I, our, our dorm, decided to do a time of prayer and fasting. And so, uh, you know, it was a day where they were praying and they were giving up food. And, and my roommate and I decided that because we were athletes at the time playing a sport, that it wouldn't be a wise idea for us to take a whole day off from eating. You know, I'm, I'm really sure that we would have dropped dead on the baseball field. You know, it's such a strenuous game that it really would have taken everything out of us. And I'm sure there's no way we possibly could have gone a day. But we convinced ourselves that we needed to fast from something else. So we decided we were, we were playing video games at that point. Oh, good three to four hours a day. So we thought, all right, we're going to fast from video games. And, you know, it wasn't too bad in the morning. We slept as late as we could and then went to class when we got up and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't a major sacrifice. But by about lunchtime, we're starting to get the shakes. You know, I mean, other people are getting the shakes because they haven't eaten. They have low blood sugar. We're like, you know, low video game sugar or whatever it is. And, and so here we are sitting there thinking, okay, we've got to do this. We finally got to the point about halfway through the day that we put a big sign on the TV that said no because the TV was like, it was like the ring in the Lord of the Rings movie. You know, the precious was calling out to us to come and play the video games. And so we put a sign on TV that said, no, you cannot do this. Because it was a real sacrifice for us to even give it up for 24 hours. Imagine if Jesus asked you for more. Imagine if Jesus said, I want you to take one night off from TV. I want you to take one night away from your TV watching and I want you to go serve at Salt and Light. I want you to give Jeff Hunt a call and go work with Mission 180 and mentor some, some, um, some kids. Or what if Jesus asked you to commit yourself never to read more pages of a novel than you do in your Bible? That would be a real sacrifice for a lot of us. You see, for this man, his wealth had become his means to personal identity, to power, to purpose, to meaning in life. His wealth had become his God. And the question is, what has become a God in your life? What is the thing that you think, there's no way I could ever give that up? There is no way I could ever let go of that if Jesus asked. I've been reading this week about a guy named Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen has written something like 40 books on uh, inner life and spiritual life and devotion and, and all kinds of great stuff. And Henry Nowen was a Catholic priest who uh, had also traveled the world teaching and lecturing and at one point held an appointment at Harvard Divinity School. So here's Henry Nowen getting to teach at Harvard. 
And he spent about three years there before he really decided that, that it was time for him, that God was calling him to go work at a daybreak community in Ontario where he would be working with mentally and physically challenged adults. Imagine the kind of sacrifice that takes to leave Harvard going into potentially relative obscurity because you're following God's call. I have to be honest with you. Uh, I look at that and I think, man, if Harvard calls tomorrow morning and says, Jason, we are going to start a youth ministry major here at Harvard. And we have scoured the country for the foremost scholar in this field, you know, and we have found that you are the man to teach uh, all of our youth ministry classes and things like that, which, you know, wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, uh, this, is gonna, this isn't going to shock you, but I, on my ACT, I scored in the double digits, actually. So, um, but, but in all seriousness, for me personally, the allure of, of people knowing my name, of, of being in a position of power and prestige, of getting to attach something significant like that to your name is a huge thing. And I wonder what it is for you. Even as you sit here and think, what is it that you say, there's just no way, I don't think. And as you answer that question, I think you'll begin to understand what is becoming a God in your own life. We continue on. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. See, even for this rich young man, the cost of following Jesus is simply too high. He walks away sad because he simply cannot give up that which is most dear in his life. You know, I, and I used to think that he walked away sad because he knew he had just given up salvation. And the more I study, the more time I spent this week in this text, the less sure I am of that. I, I'm starting to wonder if he walked away sad, not because he thought, oh boy, I can't get to heaven now. I wonder if he walked away sad because he didn't think Jesus could answer his question. The real question is, how do I keep a hold of my stuff and get to heaven? And he walks away sad because he thinks Jesus doesn't know. Well, Jesus takes this opportunity. I like to think of Jesus here as like one of the early youth ministers. Uh, Jesus sees an object lesson and he grabs onto it and he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's been a lot of scholarship done in the last uh, several hundred years that, you know, maybe there was a camel's gate in Jerusalem where, where a camel could, could get in if it just got down on its knees. Or, or maybe there's a needle's eye gate in the houses or something, kind of like a garage door that a fully loaded camel could get through. And aside from there being absolutely no evidence to support anything like that, I think it totally misses the point that Jesus is trying to make. It is not difficult. It is impossible and what Jesus is trying to do is he takes the biggest land animal of the time, a, a, a camel, and he takes the smallest opening in the, in the common home, a needle, and he says, it's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It'd be like if I stood here today and said, it's like trying to fit, you know, a Hummer through like the headphone jack of your iPod. Or, you know, it's like, it's like trying, to, trying to find gas for less than a dollar a gallon again. You know, it's just impossible. Some things just aren't going to happen. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, with, with God, all things are possible. But if you want to be good enough, if you want to do it on your own, it is going to be impossible for you. And realize, Jesus is once again very countercultural here. 
Because all throughout Old Testament times, and and even in the time of, of this encounter happening, wealth is associated with God's blessing. It was assumed that if you were rich, that's because God had blessed you. God had given you that stuff, and Jesus is telling him to get rid of it. Now realize, the passage doesn't say that wealth is a sin. Just a few chapters later in Matthew 27, Joseph of Arimathea is the one who goes to Pilate and claims Jesus' body. And in that text, Joseph is recorded as both a disciple of Jesus and a rich man. See, Jesus isn't calling for all Christians everywhere to live in poverty. Jesus is calling all Christians to be honest about what rules our lives. The point of the passage isn't necessarily for all of us, will you? get rid of it all, but would you get rid of that which stands in the way of your relationship with God? We continue on. The disciples hear this, and they're greatly astonished and ask, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first." You know, you could see the disciples saying, hey, wait a second. <laughs> we may have some stuff, but, but we have left everything. We have followed you for all three years of ministry. What, what is going ha- to happen for us? And Jesus boils it down for him. He says, you want heaven? You want a reward? Then make yourself nothing. That's what it looks like. Humble yourself and make yourself nothing. If you consistently will make yourself last, then you will be first. In heaven. We, uh, the last couple years in the Dominican Republic, I have uh, I've had opportunity to serve with some incredible people down there. And one very good friend of mine who was in the first service and uh, was very unhappy with me for sharing this. But, uh, but, but we each day, uh, when we come back, you know, we have worked really hard all morning. And, uh, and we come back and everybody's just famished and they're wanting to eat and and uh, we go in and we pray for the meal, and then there's sort of like a blast of people who go up and get in line and are ready. And a good friend of mine, John Folsom, every year when we're down in the DR, provides an unbelievable example of being last and serving. John just sits and waits for everyone else to go through because he wants to serve everybody. And, you know, since I get paid to be there and, and stuff like that, I, I'm usually trying to be towards the end and let everybody else go. And I, it's impossible to outweigh John for food in the Dominican. And I'm telling you, you know, there are, I think that the rooster in the back alley is getting fed the scraps before John finally goes up and gets some of his own food. But let me tell you, it makes an incredible example for everyone who's on the trip of somebody who wants to make himself last of somebody who wants to serve others. And you know, I really wish I could have understood this as a teenager. Somehow I survived my teenage years and, uh, and now I've spent my life trying to help teenagers do the same. And I look back at my teenagers and I think, you know, you could have been the king of your school if you had been secure enough in yourself to support and encourage and, and care about other people. But instead, most of us take a different tack to try and get to the top in our teenage years, huh? 
We try, to, we try to be sarcastic and we try backstabbing and we try all these other things and being negative. And you know what? There are enough of those around. The world is filled with people who want to get to the top by being negative. What we need are some people who want to make themselves last and who want to serve others. I've been reading a book this week by a guy named Shane Claiborne. It's a book called The Irresistible Revolution. Some of you may have heard of it along the way. But this is a book uh, that I'm about halfway through the book right now. And, and I have to give you this disclaimer. I think it's a great book. And I think it would be very worth, uh, very worth your time to read it. But it's a book that's going to mess you up just a little bit. It's a book that's really going to get you thinking. And Shane Claiborne has kind of an interesting story. Growing up in East Tennessee, he ended up attending uh, college in downtown Philadelphia. While he was in college, just became, uh, just became so distraught over the homelessness that was going on in Philly that, that he started working with some homeless people in one specific area. And in fact, quite, a, quite often would go and sleep outside with them, with that group of people. And, and, and over the course of his college time, he ends up landing an internship uh, going into his senior year with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. So he goes and he serves on this internship and lives in a leper community for a good, a good part of his time there. And when he comes back home from that internship, he goes into an internship during his senior year of school at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, a church of 25,000 in some of the more wealthy suburbs of Chicago. So Shane Claiborne's been a guy who's been on both ends of the spectrum here, working with, uh, you know, sleeping in a gutter with homeless, working with Mother Teresa, and, and has worked at Willow Creek. And it's a fascinating story, kind of his journey of life, at how he's tried to release himself from being so tied to his stuff. I have to tell you, one, uh, one pastor friend uh, was just, call, just called me on Friday and was telling me that, that uh, they made a major family move because of this book. If you can imagine, we're talking two families of six, two families with four kids have sold their other houses and moved into a house together to try and be less of consumers and things like that. And I, like I said, I'm halfway through the book. I don't think that's quite what Shane Claiborne advocates for everybody. But at least there are some people who have really tried to take action steps with it. Well, Claiborne, in the beginning of the book, is kind of talking through uh, what it means to follow, what it means to serve, and, and he talks about that, you know, some people seem to be so dead set on making celebrities, that, that sometimes even in Christianity, we put these, like, front-runner people up, that these spokesmen who speak on our behalf. And he says this, a pastor friend of mine said, our problem is that we no longer have martyrs, we only have celebrities. And a little bit later, Claiborne says this, I don't want to be another Christian superstar, another superstar Christian whom a lot of people yell at or ask to sign their t-shirts. Maybe that sounds a little dramatic, but I can't tell you how many starry-eyed young people come up to ask me for an autograph or to tell me I'm awesome. If I am awesome, we have a problem. Either folks are being set up for disappointment or they have not yet caught a glimpse of God. Only God is awesome. And we hear this story about the rich young man. And whether this is your first time ever hearing that story or you have heard it a hundred times before, I think we read this story and we all are asking the same question. What does it mean for me? Right? How guilty am I supposed to feel about the things that are already in my house? Or where do I draw the line in my life between God's blessings and, and the things that I should be a steward of and what I should do and, and how I should feel and how I should process all of this? <laughs> what we honestly end up doing is we become the rich young man in the story, right? We come back to Jesus saying, well, how much? You know, what do I have to give? What do I have to sacrifice? It's like we say to God, what do you want me to do? 
And Jesus answers back, you can never do enough. And we say, well, how much do you want me to give? And Jesus says, listen, no check you can write will ever cover it. And we say, then what's it going to take? And Jesus says, I want all of you. Nothing more, nothing less. We, uh, for Elizabeth and myself, uh, giving has always been one area that, that hasn't been a huge struggle. There are several other areas that really have been major areas of wrestling for us, but giving never was, let me say that, giving never was a big area of struggle. And it was uh, 2004 uh, in the fall, and we were getting ready to have our first uh, daughter, Katie. And we were, I was talking through a friend about once I realized some of us have had this shock moment of, oh my goodness, a baby's going to cost a lot of money, you know, with diapers and all the other things that happen. And, and so I was kind of talking to my friend about all that and had talked to him and, and we were just kind of talking about tithing and giving. And Elizabeth and I have always been, uh, we've always tried to do more than just to tithe. And, and uh, even as high school students, we sometimes would pool our money together and do some cool projects for people and things like that. And, and this friend of mine said, well, you know, God's not going to be upset with you if you just back off your tithe a little bit. I mean, if, if you just, if you just, God understands that he's blessed you with a child and you just, you know, you don't, maybe you can take a time where you don't give as much. And I have to tell you, it was the worst advice anyone's ever given me in my entire life, I think. Because here I was, we had never struggled for money at all in our entire lives. God had always given us everything we needed and most of the things we wanted. And it wasn't until that moment that we began struggling with finances from time to time. And here we are in our late 20s now, trying to get back to the kind of sacrificial givers we were when we were poor college students and had nothing. This giving thing has been an issue for us as well. And what I've come to realize is that stewardship is about trust. See, God is not interested in your stuff so much as God is interested in your heart. The stuff will come later. What God wants is to to be in a relationship with you. And we've been very convicted about this this summer through stuff I've seen in the DR trip and stuff we saw together about missionaries during CIY and things like that. Now, I want to tell you kind of what our family is going to do in response to this idea. And I, I, I really, I, I, sometimes I hate to even share stuff like this because I don't want it to be a bragging thing. I want to use it as an illustration of, of how our family's trying to put this into practice. Because I know sometimes if you're anything like me, you come in and you hear somebody talk about stuff and material things and all that, and you think, I wonder if that person's actually even doing any of what they're saying. Now, for us, we've been really convicted about how much we have and how little the rest of the world has. And we have made a decision in our household that we are going to begin, and we're going to start somewhere. It's not a huge thing. We're going to start somewhere by supporting a couple of compassion children. And what we, our dream was kind of to support uh, two girls somewhere that are the same ages of our girls so they can kind of grow up together. Uh, and unfortunately, we can't. Uh, compassion is a thing where they, they don't allow for under three-year-olds. So we're trying to work out how that looks for us and all of that. But, but what we want to do as a family is to begin supporting a couple kids that our girls can write letters to and send, send stuff to. And what we're hoping to do is someday to be able to take a family mission trip together to go and serve and to go and meet these girls who have kind of been a part of our surrogate family. And what we're hoping to do is once the girls are a little, once our daughters are a little bit older and understand the meaning of this, we would like to give up a Christmas or two where we just take the money we would have spent on each other and do some other mission stuff with it. 
Now, is that to say that our family's never going to buy a new cell phone and our family's never going to get a, a different house or a different car or any of that? No. What I'm trying to tell you is that our family has been convicted and our family is going to take some real steps to try and get our lives in line with the Jesus that we read about in this book. And our family encourages your family to do the same thing. Well, um, there are basically two camps of people here today. Okay, there are two camps of people that, that one of you is, is, is the kind of camp that I'm in here, where it's not necessarily the stuff that's the problem as much, it's the lust for stuff, right? It's the desire for stuff. And some of you in that camp would, would just give the shirt off your back if somebody was in need. Or some of us, have you ever prayed this prayer like I've done before where you, you pray and you say, God, if you would just bless me with more money, think of what I could do with that money. Right? You know, it's like, God, if you could just give me $10 million, think of all the great organizations I could give that money to, and maybe I could invest some of it and live off of the interest and, and, and quit my job and go to work full time for doing all this stuff. And, and for what it's worth, you know, sometimes I wonder if God's response to that is, what are you talking about? I have seen what you do with the things that I have given you. Why would I give you more? I'm going to give more to somebody who is already sacrificing with the small things that they have been blessed with. But for us, and some of us, it's easy to say, well, I'm not rich, so this doesn't apply to me. For some of us, the problem is actually the stuff we don't have. That's the stuff that's a bigger struggle. And what you need to hear is 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, not the money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I was, uh, I was reminded of this this week. Uh, you know, I was trying to get some time away from the office just to do some study to get ready for today and things like that. So I went to my other office, uh, Taco Bell, and, uh, and I was, <laughs> yeah, there you go. And, uh, and I had, you know, papers strewn about the table and a notepad. I was taking notes and praying through this and reading some commentaries and stuff like that. And, and I had my headphones in, not really paying attention to the world, when all of a sudden I look up and there's a guy like three tables over who pulls his iPhone out of his pocket, you know, and he starts doodling away on his iPod and he's flipping it sideways and all this kind of stuff. And about five minutes later, when like the drool ran off of the corner of my mouth and, and hit my hand and woke me up, I was like, oh man, you know, I, I got to stop staring at this iPod and get back to, or this iPhone and get back to preparing my message about materialism. And uh, <laughs> it was a little reminder for me <laughs> that, that this stuff creeps up on us out of nowhere. But there's another camp here today, okay? And this camp is for people for whom that the stuff really is the problem, okay? You're always worried that people are going to take or break or misuse your stuff. You hold on to stuff. You show it off. You, you, you are somebody who is, who is, the stuff is just always on your mind. Kind of like uh, Elsa, the lady at the end of uh, the last Crusade movie, the, the third Indiana Jones movie, you know, back when Indiana Jones movies were good. Uh, sorry, that was a cheap shot. And, uh, and this lady at the end of the movie falls to her death because she keeps reaching for that cup because she just can't give it up. And what you need to hear is Matthew 6.24, which says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And several years ago, I got uh, my first iPod. 
And, and I'll have to tell you, you know, I got it for two reasons. Uh, one is that it was a really good tool for student ministry. We run all the music and our services off of it, and I listen to stuff if I'm going to be leading worship and things like that. So there was, you know, there was one really nice reason for getting it. The other reason was I really just wanted one, okay? I'm not going to try and hide that. And, uh, and I got an iPod, and I put an inscription on the back of a scripture that I thought would, would be a really good reminder for me, just to remind me that it's a thing, and it's not the most important thing in my life, and stuff like that. Well, I had that iPod for about a year, and then it got dropped several times onto concrete at a week of church camp, so it, dest- it was destroyed. And, uh, and so I got another one. Well, this iPod lasted a couple months until one day someone stole it off my desk at the church I was working at. And so I got another iPod. <laughs> And, uh, and this one was stolen at a New Year's Eve lock-in. And, uh, yeah, I know. Um, but it, at least in some ways I'll take, uh, I'll take it as a compliment that we had an outreach event where the kind of kid would come in that would steal an iPod out of the middle of a gym. But, but uh, I went looking for, after that, I went looking for a scripture that would be a good reminder. And I was looking for one that was like, you know, if you steal something, you will burn in hell or something like that, you know. Because <laughs> I was thinking, hopefully the kid who steals this next one is going to get a reminder. But it was this reference. It was Matthew 6, 24. And it's a reminder for me, because I need this reminder. It was a reminder for me that at the end of it all, this thing is going to burn. And if I don't want to share its fate, then I better not be too attached to it along the way. And I'll tell you, if, if, if what we've talked through today makes you feel convicted, then I'm glad because you feel how I have felt for the last two weeks getting ready for today. But if what we talk about today makes you feel guilty, then I'll feel like I have totally missed the boat, because what I want you to know more than anything else, God is not interested in your guilt. God is interested in your heart. Let's pray.